Before five minutes had elapsed, I was on board the pilot cutter, they rode with such vigor that we landed in a very short time. I possess the remarkable gift of becoming blind and deaf when it suits me. I was walking along the road leading to the hotel without having heard or seen anything hurtful to my vanity, neither a glance from the pilots, betraying that they guessed my secret, nor a disparaging remark from the man who was carrying my luggage. Arrived at the hotel, I asked for a room, ordered an absinthe, lighted a cigar, and began to reflect. Had I gone mad? Was I in such imminent peril of insanity that an immediate landing had been necessary? In my present state of mind I was incapable of forming an opinion, for a madman, according to the verdict of the doctors, is not conscious of his mental disorder, and the association of his ideas proves nothing against their irregularity. Like a scientist, I examined similar occurrences which had happened to me before. When I was still a boy at college, my nervous excitability, exaggerated by exasperating events, passion, the suicide of a friend, distrust of the future, had been increased to such an extent that everything filled me with apprehension, even in broad daylight. I was afraid to stay in a room by myself, I was haunted by my own specter, and my friends took it in turns to spend the night with me, while the candles burned and the fire crackled in the stove. Another time, in an attack of wild despair, following on all sorts of misfortunes, I ran across country, wandered through the woods, and at last climbed to the top of a pine tree. There I sat astride on a branch and made a speech to the scotch firs which spread out their branches below me, endeavoring to drown their voices, imagining that I was a speaker addressing an assembled crowd. It was not so very far from here, on an island where I had spent many summers, and the headland of which was plainly visible from where I stood. Remembering that incident, with all its ridiculous details, I could not help admitting to myself that, at any rate at times, I was subject to mental delusions. What was I to do now? Should I communicate with my friends before the rumor of my attack had reached the town? But the disgrace and shame of having to acknowledge that henceforth I was on a level with the irresponsible. The thought was unbearable. Lie then. Double without being able to throw the pursuers off the scent. It went against the grain. Tormented by doubts, hesitating between different plans of escape from this maze, I longed to run away in order to be spared the terrible questions which awaited me. Like a wild beast which feels the approach of death, I thought of hiding myself in the wood to die. With that idea in my mind, I went slowly through the narrow streets. I climbed over huge rocks, saturated and rendered slippery by the autumnal rains, crossed a stubble field, reached the little house where I once had lived. The shutters were tightly closed, the wild vine which covered the walls up to the roof was stripped of its leaves, and the green lattice work was plainly visible. As I stood again upon that sacred spot, sacred to my heart, because it had seen the first blossoming of our friendship, the sense of my loss, which for a time had been forced into the background, reasserted itself. Leaning against one of the supports of the wooden balcony, I wept like a forsaken child. I remembered having read in the Thousand and One Nights that lovers fall ill with unsatisfied longing, and that their cure depends entirely on the possession of the beloved one. 
snatches of Swedish folk songs came into my mind, about young maidens who, in despair of ever being united to the object of their affections, waste away, and bid their mothers prepare their deathbeds for them. I thought of Heine, the old skeptic, who sings of the tribe of the Azra, who die when they love. There could have been no doubt of the genuineness of my passion, for I had gone back to childhood, obsessed by one thought, one picture, one single, overpowering sensation, prostrating me and rendering me unable to do anything but sigh. To distract my thoughts, I let my eyes travel over the glorious landscape spread out at my feet. The thousands of islands bristling with scotch firs, with here, and there a pine tree, which seemed to swim in the enormous bay, gradually decreased in size and transformed themselves into reefs, cliffs and sandbanks, until the huge archipelago terminated at the grey-green line of the Baltic, where the breakers dashed against the steep bulwarks of the remotest cliffs. The shadows of the drifting clouds fell in colored strips on the surface of the water, passing from dark brown through all the shades of bottle green and Prussian blue to the snowy white of the crested waves. Behind a fortress, situated on a steep cliff, rose a column of black smoke, ascending without a break from an invisible chimney, to be blown down again by the wind onto the foaming waves. All of a sudden the dark hull of the cargo boat, which I had just left came into view. The sight wrung my heart, for the steamer seemed like a witness of my disgrace. Like a shying horse, I bolted and fled into the wood. Underneath the pointed arches of the scotch firs, through the needles of which the wind whistled, my anguish increased. Here we had been walking together when the spring sunshine lay on the tender green, when the scotch firs put forth their purple blossoms, which exhale a perfume like that of the wild strawberry, when the juniper scattered its yellow pollen into the wind, when the anemones pushed their white heads through the dead leaves under the hazel bushes. Her little feet had pressed the soft, brown moss, spread out like a rug, while with a silvery voice she had sung her Finnish songs. Guided by the clear light of remembrance, I found again the two gigantic trees, grown together in an unending embrace, the two trunks were bending to the violent gusts of the wind and rubbed against each other with a grating noise. From here she had taken a little footpath to gather a water lily which grew in a swamp. With the zeal of a setter I tried to discover the trace of her pretty foot, the imprint of which, however light, I felt sure I could not miss. With bent shoulders and eyes glued to the ground, I searched the path without finding anything. The ground was covered with the footprints of the deer, and I might just as well have tried to follow the trail of a wood nymph, than discover the spot which the dainty shoe of the adored woman had trod. Nothing but mud holes, refuse, fungi, toadstools, puffballs, decaying and decayed, and the broken stalks of flowers. Arrived at the edge of the swamp, which was filled with black water, I found a certain fleeting comfort in the thought that it had once reflected the sweetest face in all the world. In vain I looked for the spot where the water lilies grew, it was covered up by dead leaves, blown down by the wind from the birch trees. I retraced my footsteps and plunged into the heart of the forest, the suffing of the wind in the branches deepened with the growing size of the trees. In the very depth of despair I sobbed aloud, the tears raining down my cheeks, like a wild stag I trampled on the fungi and toadstools, tore up the young plants, 
dashed myself against the trees. What did I want? I didn't know myself. My pulses throbbed, an inexpressible longing to see her again came over me. She, whom I loved too deeply for desire, had taken possession of my soul. And now that everything was at an end, I longed to die, for life without her was impossible. But, with the cunning of a madman, I decided to get some satisfaction out of my death by contracting pneumonia, or a similar fatal disease, for in that case, I argued, I should have to be in bed for some time, I could see her again, and could kiss her hand in saying goodbye forever. Comforted by this sudden thought, I turned my steps towards the coast, it was not difficult to find it, I had but to be guided by the roar of the breakers, which led me across the wood. The coast was precipitous and the water deep, everything as it should be. With careful attention, which betrayed nothing of my sinister purpose, I undressed myself, I hid my clothes in a plantation of alder trees and pushed my watch into a hole in the rock. The wind was cold, at this time of the year, in October, the temperature of the water could be but a few degrees above freezing point. I took a run over the rocks and threw myself headlong into the water, aiming at a cleft between two gigantic waves. I felt as if I had fallen into red-hot lava. But I rose quickly to the surface, dragging up with me pieces of seaweed which I had glimpsed at the bottom, and the tiny vesicles of which were scratching my legs. I swam out into the open sea, breasting the huge waves, greeted by the laughter of the sea gulls and the cawing of the crows. When my strength began to fail, I turned and swam back to the cliff. Now the moment of greatest importance had arrived. According to all instructions given to bathers, the real danger consists in remaining too long out of the water in a state of nudity. I sat down on the rock which was most fully exposed to the wind, and allowed the October gale to lash my bare back. My muscles, my chest immediately contracted, as if the instinct of self-preservation would protect the vital organs at any price. But I was unable to remain on the same spot, and, seizing the branch of an alder tree, I climbed to its top. The tree swayed with the convulsive, uncontrollable movements of my muscles. In this way, I succeeded in remaining in the same place for some time. The icy air scorched my skin like a red-hot iron. At last, I was convinced that I had attained my end, and hastily dressed myself.